Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypher Skin. James, we got a listener question to talk about um, REF, which is a way um, that the, the UK system uses to, to rank universities and departments. League tables, uh, they've been around for, for, for quite a while and almost, <laughs> you know, it's the same time of the year rolls around and universities start talking about how they ranked on this thing. I remember last year, um, University of Sydney, uh, alma mater, um, they, they celebrated and they were like, hey, we, we were ranked 69 in this league table. And there was like a thousand, there, 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 there was like, there was about a hundred responses. And you know, you know how it is on Facebook, anything that gets nice <laughs> so so there was a hundred responses going nice and um of course because there was a hundred responses this particular post was um was, was getting shoved into everyone's algorithm so in in that respect university of sydney actually it was actually better for them to get ranked 69 than to get ranked 50th so there you go universities aim for that ranking but yeah league tables what do you what are your thoughts around this james about universities getting ranked against one another well, REF is obviously UK-specific, mm. right? Um, it is the research excellence framework. Everybody hates it. Um, it it hoovers up a bunch of um, star ratings across a, uh, a variety of criteria. It's only one way of doing the ranking and performance evaluation thing. So I believe that there's also a Times Higher Education version for uh, UK specific. I've seen I've seen THE uh, metrics for this. It's uh, the UK specific. In the US, the equivalent is the oh uh, US News university rankings Mm. so like most things in life daniel there are benefits and drawbacks now the problem in our metrics obsessed world is that we require for the just the general function of how we wish to split things up into categories metrics via which we may categorize different things and you will always get with something this big in a space this competitive, you will always get the rankings being reverse engineered by the people who are participating within them. Oh, yeah. One, 100% of the time. Are you familiar with the name for this, where the ranking affects the measurement itself? It's the um, name escapes me. What's it called again? Come on, you got this. <laughs> no, James, I do not have this. I do not have this after after <laughs> after moving house. James, I have I have two children. I have just moved house. I am trying to do my job at the same time. Someone just gave me a bunch of herring money to do my job. I do not have this. <laughs> what is it called again, James? Any measure that becomes a target ceases to be a good measure. Goodhart's law. Goodhart's law. 
course. Right. Although Goodhart didn't say that. This is a piece of the, the history. He, he said something that was vaguely equivalent to it, right, which was something like any statistical regularity has a tendency to collapse from its premises when used for control purposes. Oh, and that didn't but take the, off. <laughs> but the, no, for some reason it didn't. Um, and it was originally about the reserve bank policy or something like that. But the <laughs> version of it that everyone's familiar with was the anthropologist Marilyn Strathern, who, who managed to coin it in a much more pithy and straightforward way. And when she did, Daniel, do you know what she was talking about? Rankings in the British university system. No. Yes. Whoa. So you have you have Full inadvertent circle. you have inadvertently stumbled into a rather surprising confluence of events here. Wow. So let me let me tell you a little bit about the um uh the the US version of this about which I know a lot more before I start slandering the UK, although I'm sure there's plenty of reasons to do that that we'll get to. National So it of course. So the US version adds up all the various different prestige measures. And it adds up all the various monetary measures and all the different student support measures, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Talking like then- student stuff ratios, stuff like that. Yes, exactly, exactly. Class sizes is a big one. Um, money spent, uh, eventual, eventual salary of the graduating class, all this good shit. And it also, I mean, that depends a lot more depending on what degree is actually being done. However, all of the numbers that the university send to the US news ranking people, who are, I should add, a fucking newspaper, not a government body, <laughs> right? <laughs> Is it like a tabloid um, or is it like a more of a broad I I don't know I don't know enough about okay. them. I think I've slandered them enough for one <laughs> lifetime for doing this in the first place. So there have been at least half a dozen scandals on this that I can remember personally. Um the first and most obvious one is the fact that do you know how college acceptance rates are very low in the US? It's hard to get in places, it's competitive, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's not hard to get into places. The amount of people as a percentage who get into places are artificially deflated by a fairly recent system that allows you to multiply apply for several colleges at the same time. Okay. That's why you see those news stories once a year about um, troubled teen from terrible neighborhood gets accepted into 14 colleges, you know? Yeah, it's because okay. It's because she's a weapon, Right. But she's also applied for 14 colleges and they all just happen to accept her, right? So, this is a statistical artifact. It's a statistical artifact of the fact that rather than writing 14 fucking letters where you go, here's my fancy choice, here's my adequate choice, here's my local choice down the road, here's my long shot, whatever. Oh, yeah, whatever the fuck it's called, right? You just go ticky, 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 digital tool. I've applied to 14 colleges. Now, some of them are more selective than others, but there's people applying, for instance, to go to MIT who would have to go there to Cambridge, Massachusetts and just rub sticks together in the corridor. So, obviously, they're told no, right? So, that's that's one of them. Then there's things like what happens to class size. Well, what happens to class size is less... Is, is also part of the 
distortions of the ranking, but it's not anything that's problematic or illegal or silly. So, for instance, a special premium is given to class sizes under 20. So when I was at Northeastern, we had a rigid class size cap of 19. Okay, just keep under. There were, 19, there were 19 chairs in the room. Wow. Yeah, it went, it went that deep. And there's a whole article you can read in, I think it's in boston.com or one of the other uh, local journalism things from Massachusetts that tell the whole story of the rabid pursuit of rankings via people reverse engineering them at Northeastern over a period of years. And that makes them exactly like every single other place, to be quite honest. Yeah. Um, it's when it starts to get a little bit dicier when you do things like the two recent analysis uh, by a guy called Thaddeus, who's at Columbia, who looked up there was a the, the, there are, there are things like percentage of staff with a terminal degree. And the the percentage at Columbia was incredibly high, right? It was ninety five percent. Now, bear in mind that when if you say if you study uh, musicology or journalism or some other areas of the humanities, it's somewhat unusual in some areas to have a PhD. It was like, would you insist that your journalism professor had a PhD in journalism? No, man. They 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 don't think about that it's not a matter where you need to study you don't study journalism you practice journalism sure, that's sure. that's the vibe of it so it would be like a quarter of the people in the department so this man simply added up all the numbers at columbia and then figured that the numbers that columbia submitted were full of shit and if you oh god there was another one i can't remember where this was it was a business school but what they did was to inflate the figures of people who had a job after graduation. They started their own bullshit back-end LLC no. and, then started, and then started employing anyone who couldn't get a job no. through the LLC. Just to juke the numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think they spent a lot of money on it. I think they, they set it up as like a, you know, it's a post-graduation, like anyone who's invited and it's a post-graduation thing where you can do an internship or something like that. And then they, um, and then they called that a job. So- in other words, this is like the professional industrial recreation. It's not so much Goodhart's law as Goodhart's fucking ecosystem. <laughs> and it obviously results in an environment where rather than any sort of abstract measure of good quality research or good quality stuff or any number of other things, it results in good quality metrics. And the metrics may or may not be reflective of the underlying environment. Now, what this means is you've professionalized, rather than the job itself, the methods of making the job itself appear to be a certain way. Does that make sense? In other words, if you if you have a, a you know a few people from the media department and a team that handles external relations and your own in-house statisticians who cock about with the numbers to see what they can justify and send to the ranking people in the first place, then you have more resources by definition. So you end up with some kind of meta measurement of how good you are at fucking around with the rankings. So as a consequence, when it comes to these things, as a sort of an element of extra exclusionary pressure added to managerial bullshit. Two of my favorite things, as you're well aware, 
as far as I'm concerned, all of these rankings should go and fuck themselves with a fence paling. I think they're loathsome. Here's the problem, though. They go into much larger macro systems of evaluation where at some, as much as it pains me to admit it, as much as it's like this is annoying my teeth that these words are coming out past through my mouth over my tongue. Some form of evaluative capacity has to exist. Because let's make it good then. How, oh, yes, let's make it good then. But then you end up with, well, how do you make it good? Well, you prevent people from from doing Goodhart's law, right? <laughs> that's and impossible, then you don't, though. And then, and then you don't tell them what the criteria are. But if that's the case, then they're subject to the whim of faceless bureaucrats who can change their mind at any point in time. The power dynamic is completely shifted to the people doing the rating. And they can suddenly decide that they don't like your tie. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Cambridge University is ranked 1,050 because- <laughs> There's a binary variable called bad tie that takes <laughs> off 1,498 places. But I agree with you that this rewards the universities which are good at messing around the numbers and moving things around. But I think there are some measures which are less likely to be messed with. Class sizes. Smaller class sizes is a good thing. That uh, Yes, in- until you consider what they did at Columbia, Dan, which is where you have a larger class and then you define the class in terms of small study sections that are vaguely irrelevant to the class where there's only six people in each study section and oh, then so you call that the class better. size. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, give me, give me, give me another one. Come on, okay. come on for ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that, that's a good point. No matter what you do, someone's going to mess around and, and find a way around it. But- there's no getting around it, so we we should at least try and do there, measures. You, you, I'm I'm afraid so. As much as you you know, I generally favour the uh, bombs and barricades solution to a lot of problems. Tiered, tiered stuff will be handed out. How how like money goes into whole regions of the country may change on the basis of something like this. Um, Universities that manage to do something better in a legitimate sense may be rewarded by it. Yeah. And the, the alternative is, I mean, if the alternative is just sort of chance and anarchy and favors, mm. there's absolutely no guarantee that that will in any way be fairer than an admittedly flawed system, even if I personally don't like it, which is be- not anyone else's problem, is it? So, <clears throat> the the problem I think with ref I think one of the reasons that people don't like it apart from the the obvious direct parallel of artificiality uh, to what I just said about the parallel system on the other side of the Atlantic is the fact that all of this metricization fiddle faddle takes time. Yeah, there's whole it takes time. To this. Yeah, so it it ends up being a cost. It ends up being a cost to individual people who have to make submissions for it and engage with it. And the idea, look, after we end up globally in a state where we've managed to, well, let me let me put it this way: if you think of the global scientific enterprise as a country, then we had some kind of baby boom a while back, right? We decided that the easiest way to do research in general was to have as many PhD students as possible and then maintain as many low-wage alleged fellowship and training opportunities as possible. 
Uh, then we dramatically expanded short-term temporary and adjunct work under the uh, un- under the auspices of more flexibility in the workplace or some other neoliberal drug-induced delusion and managed to gradually wind down the amount of permanent positions and dramatically wind down the amount of permanent decisions. Decisions, fuck me, positions available on as a proportion. Yeah, so less positions, but for more people who want to actually do them in the first place. So we've already made a number-driven commitment to make everyone's life really fucking difficult. And this affects tenured people as well, people sure. with permanent positions anywhere, because they end up wanting to work with the people down the corridor and then having to make their own submissions to grants they might not actually have to do otherwise to be able to support them. They're in an environment where their colleagues come and go on a highly non-permanent basis. Now, it doesn't affect them because they're not on the fucking breadlines or anything like that. <laughs> but it very difficult. It very definitely makes their job more difficult, and they don't they don't like it. I mean, few of them are compelled to do anything about it because it's not their problem, and that's human nature. As much as we would wish it differently, that is simply the reality of the situation. And they can bitch about it all they want, and many of them do. But very few, there's not very few tenured radicals. Um, at least there are politically. There's plenty of politically tenured radicals, but r- radicalism towards the organization of uh, higher education and the government support of the university enterprise in general is remarkably uncommon for some reason because you just don't shit where you eat. It is not there. No, of course, of course it isn't there. I mean, that's a completely parallel conversation. I was having this morning is the fact that um, when it comes to diversity training in companies, do you think that a company will hire a diversity consultant who comes in and goes, hey, your board is all white people. Your board is all male people. I want the senior management in this room so they can yell at them about their commitment to and follow through on actual principles of diversity. I don't want to yell at your junior staff about their implicit bias. I want to actually change this. Will they get hired by the company? Will they? Fuck. <laughs> no. Yeah? So th- these these things essentially become a sort of a, a – a kind of, I don't know, we could call it woke washing or something. You know, you've got enormous, enormous corporations with a fiduciary duty to fuck everyone to death as often as humanly possible. Coming out and considering it a really, really excellent use of $150,000 to sponsor something that looks good within that realm. Or, or they'd like to say, we gave everyone at our organization diversity training, so we can't possibly be guilty of all the racism that these people are accusing us of with examples and written documents and recorded phone calls and shit in this particular court <laughs> case because we told everyone else not to do it. So the, the perversity of management exists in a lot of areas at a lot of levels. And in general, it is obviously irritating for everyone concerned. But, you know especially for me today. What you were talking about reminded me a couple of days ago, this uh, this senior bloke tweeted, oh, I was talking to all my mates and we've noticed there's fewer people applying for postdoc positions and we're all noticing the same thing. What's going on? Yes, <laughs> I I had a minor yell about that. Oh, did you? Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, this is one of one of. I mean, I I do actually see some tweets as much as you live on Twitter. I mean, I'm there I know, I know, I know you o- see often. Tweets. I no no, I'm not entirely ignorant of everything. 
you know, I d- no one sent that to me. I saw that by myself. Um, and I wanted to talk about the sort of the, the details that were missing from that in the US example. And because it's Twitter, everyone immediately replied, the rest of the world exists, as opposed <laughs> to, you know, I'm talking to a group of Americans about my experience in America. I'm terribly sorry I didn't manage to cover the fucking work environment in Belgium. Why don't you cover it yourself? You lazy fuck. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the 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 problem with that is, I mean, this that's obviously a U.S. specific example. It's someone at a, a a U.S. university in the Midwest talking to all their friends who are similar institutions. Um, I think there's a tipping point that is being reached um, with all this, the way that all these structural factors fit together. Um, why can't I find many postdocs? Well, I think postdocs have never been older than they are now. Yeah. I think they're getting to this point uh, much later in life. Um, I think given that inflation, that the wages that are set at the NIH minimums uh, are now dramatically off. Especially where, in expensive cities. Well, this is generally where universities are. There are plenty of universities in what's in nowhere, but generally they're institu- in- educational institutions and they're not research institutions. Now, obviously, there's a wide variety of exceptions, but that's a, a general rule of thumb. Yeah. The big research universities are in large cities where just hi- historically and for a variety of other reasons. So, it's expensive to live, the people are old, the money is small, and I think also the, I think a lot of awareness in the last maybe four to five years in particular of the fact that leaving academia is not a personal failure or a problem. It's one, the reality, and two, generally the pathway to not eating ramen in the dark, um, especially in the US. And to that, to that, we can add the extreme disruption of the plague where a couple of job cycles were kicked out. And what I think happened was simply the fact that people who would ostensibly make a commitment to do that oh, I'm graduating in six months, I'm graduating in 12 months, I'm graduating right now. I think there's going to be a lag effect. And people who saw what was happening made a decision to do something else. And I may have played a small part in that myself because I knew, I knew when the plague started up that the disruption was going to be Severe. I mean, it was particularly severe in Australia, but it was it was it was problematic pretty much everywhere. Yeah, and these are already overextended systems of how they're organized. I mean, you can you can argue about whether or not it's the organization or the structural funding that means simply that there aren't enough resources to keep everyone happy and have a sort of modicum of regular life. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still fucked. And if you look at it and it's fucked and people have just a little bit, just a tiny little bit of exposure of what's possible in research, science and academic adjacent industries, of which also in the last couple of years until quite recently of the economy going pretty fucky, there have been an awful lot of biotech and biotech adjacent um, and 
obviously there's always been a, like technology company, but the, the, the demand for data scientists and analysts, for instance, is particularly fierce. Um, of course, engineers in perpetuity, which has been exacerbated here by the fact that they decided a few years ago to fuck the legal immigration system up horribly. Okay. So all of these things are being shaken up in a bucket. And where are all the people is it's what you say when you're not interested in the macro parameters and you just throw the job ad out and someone's going to turn up and everything's going to be okay. Because, I mean, I think it, I think it reveals a certain ignorance about like, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. I, I fucking, I fucking wrote about this nearly two years ago. Now you can see a lot of what I'm saying now reflected on what I wrote down at the time before all of this had happened. It's not because I'm Nostradamus. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> Australian Nostradamus, Oz, Ostradamus. Ostradamus. Yeah, there you go. And I've got, got predictions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now about the future, mate. <laughs> Ostradamus. <laughs> it, it was, it, yeah. So, like, Os, Ostradamus had a good had a good day out on something like that, and I, I, I followed stories about this from dogs. all. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'll get down adapter and make Jeff- a packet. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so. Mate, it's 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 part of it. it's part of it. These things these things are connected, and you only get to to have them slap you in the face when you have some kind of macro interaction with it. So when you put out a big like, I need three new postdocs, and in, rather than getting a hundred applications, you end up getting fifteen. Yeah, I'd call that a macro rather than a micro interaction because the rest of us just usually we have a limited a limited personal experience. Unless you have a job that is related to you getting more experience, which is not a lot of people. You have limited personal experience and you have limited people that you know who are in that exact position. But, I mean, you find out really quickly. I've had this happen to me before where I put out a a, a job ad for something in particular. And I've watched who's turned up, who's come in, what's happened, what people, what's what's been done in context. And I, I saw like who applied and where they were from and how it worked and went, wow, this is this is an amazing piece of demographic information that's just turning up for free. This is how this is perceived. This is who is available in the labor market. This is really interesting because when you get 120 applications for one job, um, I don't know if that had happened anymore, but I mean, at the time, you get 120 applications for one single job and who turns up is an astonishing cross-section of the world. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting. So some people are only going to find all of this stuff out rather than thinking about it from first principles when they just open up a job ad and see who turns up. Mm. And the answer in, in, in some of these contexts might be very few people because it's just the work is not fucking attractive anymore. Yeah. I, I think people are realizing that their skills can actually be used elsewhere. One, because of the emergence of these new types of jobs, um, but also uh, and kind of related to, the, to your point where just this idea that not continuing academia to, to a tenure track or a tenure position is, 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 is necessarily a failure. Um, people are kind of realizing, hey, there mm. are other options. And of course. I, yeah, and people finishing their PhDs are looking at, looking at the situation. It's now, I mean, look, the, the situation is getting worse and worse, but 
it's now very easy to see how bad the situation is. People can look at it and say, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm, I'm going to jump on, j- jump off this train. And, and that's what's happening. And I don't, I, I don't blame people. I think the, the conversation around this has changed and people regard a terminal degree, a graduate degree, as when, as, as a personal asset rather than a union card that gets you into academic whatever. Mm. And that is always how we have both recommended that it would be thought of. Yeah. yeah. And as might be expected, that really changes your perception of what happens next. You can see plenty of people explain it. Um, you know, I came out of a sports science lab. I could fight like hell to be a shitty adjunct in a thing. Or there's a sports team that's offering me a data scientist position for probably 80% more money. <laughs> Easy. To Easy actually decision. to actually do data science on sports and figure things out and know stuff and maybe even publish something from time to time. I mean, shit, I'm still publishing and sometimes I'm not even really trying. What you, it what just sort of happens. Other than meta science stuff, are you still doing physiology stuff? I'm, I'm um, seriously. I curious. have I have some I have some at work actually. Um, we have some we have some research that's nascent that I got interested oh, in at, okay. at work, and it's easy enough to get in the, the 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 US. You get a private ethics committee to unless you work with a university, it's perfectly possible to just get a consultant ethicist basically who will review your study and agree that it's a good idea. Okay. Um, it isn't. It isn't cheap, but it isn't expensive is it a either. Single ethicist or two? Oh, it's a regular IRB that is run by a commercial organization. Interesting. These are very common here because imagine you're doing a network thing with twenty hospitals. Do you do you want to? If you've been through hospital ethics once, <laughs> then the idea of going through hospital ethics twenty times oh, and the subsequent decade and utter me. reaming. Yep. Right, you get it. So what they do, rather, is the 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 commercial ethics committee signs a reciprocal agreement with the university, and then you prepare one application that goes to the commercial service. Wow. Okay. This is this is um. I've heard of this is a possibility, but I didn't realize. Well, it was so widespread. This, uh, it's it's well. Imagine you're trying to. S- Study something that's reasonably uncommon, which is an awful lot of medical everything. Sure. There's not just one round every corner, you know? Say you're looking for specifically uh, BRCA1 negative unilateral breast cancer patients with early detection to try your new drug or procedure. Got to go. How many, how many are you going to find a month even in a big city? Got to go international. Got to go national. Well, yeah, at the very least, all the way over a region. Um, you have to have a really large catchment area to find the people that you're looking for. Um, even with something that's reasonably common, because you may have very specific requests, you know? Um, so there are solutions for this. And obviously solutions appear in and around problems if people are going to pay for them. And obviously these are very large clinical studies, clinical trials usually. So there's money there. And when there's money there, the greasy little bastards, of which I suppose I am one now, so we turn up. <laughs> but then are these private companies, how, so go, we're going a bit off track here, but how are they not motivated to just be known to accept what you're proposing? How, 
because at, at least with a with an IRB board that's attached to a university or hospital, they're sort of separate. But this private is does the money become a conflict? I don't, I don't know. This is the, this is the first I've actually thought about. Well, this. it's it's perfectly possible that it would, but think think about it this way: What if it cost you money to have it re reviewed? So, so it's so it's in their interest to to reject it. <laughs> Rather than accept, yeah. So, but so, but you're just pushing the pieces around. But if they just rejected everyone's application, who would ever use them? Yeah. But then, if they, but then, if they accepted everyone's, are they doing? If they a good accept job? everyone's application. Something that they approve will eventually go incredibly bad, making them utterly non-viable within the space of just a few incidents. Okay. okay. Now yeah, you might that. think that should be prevented in the first place. These are not equivalent harms, to which I'd say you're absolutely right. And the answer is, like everything else, if they want longevity, then they're strongly incentivized to not fuck this up as often as possible. But there's also there's also a nasty little truth hiding here, Daniel, which is the fact that an enormous amount of studies are done badly, ethics or otherwise, and an enormous amount of allegedly ethical oversight is a bunch of fucking fiddle-faddle. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Obviously, obviously, huge chunks of it are vital and necessary, and it's part of the post World War II system we've built to not using science to fuck people up or make anything worse for them. Yeah. But at the same time, when it comes to being an officious git, then eventually remit remits like this organizations acquire their own internal inertia, and anything that. At some point in time, an ethical committee at a hospital will do as much ethicizing as possible because the position needs to be justified. Would you rather just approve everything that looked okay and then knock your hours down to part-time or do you need more staff and more control? Yeah. Okay. okay. Everything, everything exists in a network of various conflicts. The only good thing about money is the fact that in general – it's pretty fucking obvious where the money's going. Yeah. You remember that paper? Oh, I wish I could remember who this was. You remember that paper uh, where the fella listed the conflict of interest as, if I don't get this published, my university's going to fire my ass, so this should be considered a conflict of interest. <laughs> like, this is absolutely crucial for me to do I, my job. I think that it's you like a few this. times. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll have to find that. Oh, the, the, old- only, the only honest scientist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Telling tell it how it is. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I want to talk about this um, this paper that came out a couple of weeks ago. This was a new paper published in Nature Medicine. And uh, one of the authors summarized this, that the results suggest that psilocybin therapy, and psilocybin is the main active ingredient in magic mushrooms, liberates uh-huh. the entrenched depressed brain by increasing the global integration of functional networks. Look, the main point of the paper was to investigate a potential mechanism for, for psilocybin therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think um, psychedelics is interesting. We, we all know that the, the medicine cabinet, at least within psychiatry, is, is running pretty dry. Um, we haven't really discovered anything um, yeah, other, other than ketamine, but, that, but that, that, that's really a new indication for, for something else. Well, well, you haven't, certainly. No, <laughs> no, no one has. So the fact that we're actually looking at different alternatives like psychedelics, I, I think it's a good thing. Um, I'm not um, anti-psychedelic. I think it's worth investigating. But essentially uh, what happened here was this is a new paper that was published and there was, uh, there was some critique. A, a couple of authors found or at least um, began 
uh, raised a few issues with the paper. They sent this as a letter to the editor or as a, as a small paper back to Nature Medicine, which was rejected. Um, and so the authors ended up posting this as a preprint on-site archive, which we will post to talking about some issues with the paper. Um, essentially, look, a lot, a lot of the typical stuff, uh, outcome switching, the original pre-registration mentioned one depression measurement scales the outcome, except they reported another one. Um, so this is, um, again, this, this, this is one of the great benefits of, of pre-registration of clinical trials. It's very transparent where you can see whether there's outcome switching. There are so many depression measurements that you can possibly use. So if you're going to give your participants a lot of them, then some of them are going to end up working or they're likely to end up working. Um, the other problem was the the use of a one-tailed test or at least a one-tailed test which wasn't pre-registered to, to talk about this relationship between brain modularity and depression scores. Um, so, look, this wasn't unusual, but um, the response was, 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 was quite interesting in that they went with the classic, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who we are? There, 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 there was even James. There Obviously, was, we know who you are, dickhead. We just wrote to you. All your names are on the top of the form. We had. A, yes, we, had, we know who you are. We had a classic link. They even <laughs> went to. The, they even went to the lengths of linking to the Google Scholar profile. Gee, when you get to the point, <laughs> when you get to the point where you are adding in <laughs> this this Google spot. Co- Google Scholar profile link, which is like which is like the, the length of an entire line of a manuscript, then I think you know you've, you've you've lost the argument. It's never a good look to 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 suggest how dare you criticise us. We have a long history of research in this area, and we've posted and and, and we've published papers in these fancy journals. Um, how dare you criticise us? I, I think the 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 exact um, terminology they used is. Um, Oh, they, they said something along the lines of, "Yeah, like this is um, this is a you know a, a major affront that that um, that we're, we're so fancy in the field that you actually accuse us." So, this is a, ma- a major affront. I, I, I got to find no. They call it a cheap shot. They call it a cheap shot. That that was the exact term a they used. Cheap shot. A cheap shot because because a, a preprint cheap shot that the original journal wouldn't publish. No, no, no. They, they called it. They, they called the critiques. A cheap shot, given their, their 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 eminence and their prestige in the field, because they've they've contributed so much. Ah, oh, I just can't believe this kind of stuff keeps on happening. The fact that, sure, you may have done great stuff in the past, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your new paper is also good. Just because you've done this great stuff doesn't mean that you're completely immune to critiques. Like, and this is all happening in public, and I, I just don't know how you could write with a straight face of this I, I'm I'm a fancy author, and here's my Google Scholar profile. How um, that, that this is a cheap shot. <laughs> it's just like, it's there in public. This isn't just some some discussion happening behind closed doors. I love preprints, yeah. James. I love I love this well, public discussion. Well, here's 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 the thing. Say you were involved in some degree at the back end of this journal in in silencing or deflecting this critique, so it wasn't published. <laughs> Now that's a fucking cheap shot. Yeah. 
Also, from from memory, let me throw a few other things into that particular bouillabaisse of silliness. From memory, the people who were writing this critique, I don't know as much about this as you, but I do have a couple of memories that seem important to me. From memory, they were from a, oh, this is a tiny, shitty little university, I think, that's in the Caspian Sea, like at about 1,200 metres down near the pilot fish called uh, Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. <laughs> right. Tiny, tiny little place. No one's heard, no one's of, heard it. of it. Obviously, obviously they, they, they employ only people who cheap shot professionally, actually. I believe the, uh, the, uh, the name for Hopkins in Baltimore is collectively known as Cheap Shot U. Cheap Shot U. Um, so, I mean, it's obviously this is if, – if that's happening and people are putting their name to it and people who are in a reasonably senior and public position to be able to do this – you are, even as someone who's reasonably senior, you are taking a risk if you do that. The whole idea that it's going to be perceived negatively, like <laughs> a lot of people still now won't. So the idea that they wrote to the journal, the journal told them to pound sand, and then they actually released it as a preprint is, well, you know, now the fancy people are using our tools. I mean, that, that's it's a lovely story about the normalization of the idea that there should be immediate discussion around issues like this that are conducted by people who allegedly know what they're talking about. Um, but you're really going off heuristics after that. You know, don't you know who I am is obviously a marvelous heuristics for no and you don't either, you fucking daft pig. <laughs> um and simultaneously, like obviously, the, the you have to slander the critic a bit. It's uh, you know, you everyone remembers the marvelous list of all the things that, you know, the data Stasi, all that good shit. Yeah. Oh fuck, I forget, I forget half the of whole, the whole list. There's a whole list. Oh uh, yeah, people never mentioned that. Like when it came to informational control and accuracy, as much as they were incredibly terrible people in the service of a, a regime that in a sane world wouldn't exist, the Stasi were actually very detail oriented. Maybe you could say accuracy um, fetishists. Perhaps. Oh yes, yes, yes. They're definitely accuracy fetishists. I mean, also though, I mean. Disgusting totalitarian lunatics, but they—they uh, they were yes, but uh, just suffice suffice to say, um, yeah, I think they—they—they they, they cared about a uh, uh, dotting eyes and crossing t's at the very least. So it's interesting that that played out the way it did. I mean, that's not a pub here story. It's—it's—it's it, it's, it's a preprint kind of story, and. Of course, of course, when, when it comes to something like this, uh, my opinion of psychedelics is similar to my op opinion of longevity research, which is similar to my opinion of some supplement research, which is the fact that there are people who believe in this stuff who are not scientists in the traditional sense. I think there's more true believers and boosters and people who are actually quite dangerous in their fervor rather than people in the sort of Mertonian norm of disinterestedness. I think they're highly fucking interested. <laughs> and there's also a lot of – there's also, these are also areas where there's a lot of private money, yeah, a lot of private money. And when you introduce private money – it's it's a far worse 
it's a far worse indicant that an outcome will be pushed or supported than than public money. Because you have the option, you have the option at the very least to say, we don't understand this yet, give me more cash when it comes to getting money from the government to do a research project. With a private with with private funders, a lot of the time it's more the environment of I'm giving you money to prove what I already know. Now go out there and prove it. Now people may think that that's unfair, but I've I've felt these vibes. I've been in the room with these vibes. There really is a you know oh we gave them the money with no expectation. It's just entirely without entirely without expectation. So they were going to find what they were going to find. I was completely removed from the process. I mean, you, everyone says that. You know, the National Blueberry Council says that about the research that concludes blueberries will make you live for a million years. Um, the the rich wackos from Silicon Valley Family Longevity Research say that about the biologists working on the fucking telomeres, blah, 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 right? The thing is, it's all about who you're giving the money to. If you pick someone on the basis that you know they agree with you and you vibe with them and you know what the unspoken expectations are and you know what they want to find as well. It's like the editorial line in a newspaper. No one goes around the Fox Newses with a baseball bat and like picks the people who wrote the wrong stuff and then enforces the party line by beating the fuck out of anyone who says the wrong thing. You only get through the door if you show the implicit understanding of what the right thing is to say. The selection has already been done and you create an environment where people are competing to agree with each other. That's how social enforcement of something works. And it's equally as true at a biased newsroom as it is with biased scientists. They're in the room because they know what conclusion they're expected to come to. Now, that may sound negative, and it is, but I'm right. But on that note, we are going to wrap up for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, thank you for your support, especially to our patrons as well. We we love you all. In the words we of love, Jeff Fenix. We love you all. In the words of Ostradamus. Ostradamus. Oh, <laughs> mate, in two weeks, the next episode's going to be a killer. I can feel it now. I can feel it in my feminine waters. <laughs>